Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I have an extra special guest. His business owns 300 properties in the southeast of England. His company is one of the largest providers of temporary accommodation in the southeast. And in addition to this, they also have a lettings business, building and maintenance business, as well as a not-for-profit organization. He has a master's degree in finance and a degree in financial economics with econometrics. It's a bit of a mouthful. So welcome, <laughs> Ross McCall. How are you? Good to have yeah. you here. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Yourself? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. So, Ross, I guess we'd better start with how did you get into property? To be honest, I suppose we were dragged into it. So my brother and I are partners in the business. Um, from a young age, I mean, my first memory of being involved in property is actually uh, was a new build site just around the corner from my house. And my mum was actually selling new builds on this estate, which we own a few of the estate now. But we there was a new build sales office there. And so I would be in there watching the TV. My mum my was trying to sell new build houses. Uh, she, she didn't have any kind of a portfolio at that stage. But that's my first memory of property as a child. And I'm within a five minute drive of that. And like I said, we bought a few of those since. Brilliant. Um, so that's where it started. We were dragged up around it and we were always taken to tenants' houses and things like that, more because my mum wanted to speak to the tenants and have lengthy conversations than really the business end. I wouldn't say I grew to love it, actually, quite the opposite in the early days because, it, you know, we weren't choosing to be there as children. As we grew up, I, I reached uh, 17 was when I started rent collecting. So that was where I actually got actively involved in the business. I did get some funny looks as a 17-year-old turning up to collect money from people, but it did it made me be quite robust because I had to deal with some certain types of characters at, at quite a young age and trying to take you know a thousand pound off them or whatever it may be at the time. So that that was quite a good starting point. Once I got to 18, we were sort of I was nurtured into this role of starting to buy and understanding the investment side of it. And very shortly after, um, I actually ended up, went into estate agency for a couple of years. So at the age of, I think it was 19, I started. I did that for a couple of years, but I wasn't actively involved in the business on the day-to-day. As much as we were still buying properties, I was, a little, I was quite hands-off at that stage. And the primary reason was because my mum was involved with the portfolio and we clashed a lot. <laughs> so as much as I wanted to grow a portfolio, we couldn't work alongside each other. Yeah. And I said, I do not want anything to do with running this business. So I'm going to go and do my own thing and you do your thing. I'll do my thing and I'll keep buying properties as the, the process goes through. So fast forward after uh, the two years have finished as an estate agent. And but I did learn a lot. I didn't, I enjoyed it at first. But I got sick of it quite quickly, if I'm honest. But I, I got to understand the in, in the mechanics of what goes on behind the scenes, why you pick one buyer over another, which down the line became very useful. But I decided after two years that I wanted to be a trader in the city. So I gave a week's notice to the guy that I was working for because the term was due to start. 
but I didn't have any A levels. So I left school at 16. Didn't do didn't do well in school at all because I was very very rebellious and chose not to work. But it did come back to bite me a little bit. So I had to go and do an access to higher education course, uh, which I did down in Tunbridge. And then I really enjoyed that, and I got a bit of a taste for education. Yeah. So I managed to get my uh, my degree doing uh, financial economics with econometrics. And then I, I went to Imperial College London and I did, I did my master's there in finance with a view that I wanted to get into one of the top tier investment banks as a, as a trader. And I was fixated on it. So that became my world for about five years. Why did you have that goal? What was the inspiration behind that? Was it just think... you saw traders, I don't know, and you're like, you thought that lifestyle is a bit of me? or I think it was a bit about that. Uh, my life was quite different from most of the people when I finally got the internship I'm, I was a little bit older I was 24 at the time I think but I met my partner when she was 19 and she already had sorry I was 19 and she already had two children so yeah. I was in a very very I had a very different life to most of the people in the internship that were 21 years old no responsibilities it was five minutes from Canary Wolf Different motivations there, aren't there? Definitely. I did like this idea of real hustle and bustle environment, a lot of testosterone flying around. You know, I I love numbers and the financial side of it. So I, I sort of lived and breathed it for that period of time. When I got there, I really I sort of enjoyed the internship, but it was more about getting the opportunity to get on the graduate scheme at Citibank. Well, I got the graduate acceptance and then they gave me an early start. But what I did in the middle was I worked within the business on the management side in between finishing the internship and starting the graduate scheme. I worked for three months in the business. In the family business, sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I went back now having done the educational side and I had a lot more to bring to the table. But I realized very, very quickly that there were just so many massive improvements I could make really, really easily. It was, you know, nothing was computerized. There were lots of tenants not paying the rent. It was being managed very poorly. It was grown into this sort of a bit of a juggernaut, but just not, it was just completely mismanaged. So in the middle, having done that, I then went back on the graduate scheme, but I had this thing in the back of my mind saying to me, right, you're this very, very small piece of this massive business you know, the likelihood of you making a difference in this business for someone else is going to be minimal, but you've got this opportunity to go and be be the master of your own destiny, develop that, grow that relatively easily, especially in the front end and make it your own. So I've been on the graduate scheme for, been been back to city for about a year, let's say. And I spoke to my mum and I said, look, I'll come and take over the business in its entirety, but you've got to leave. (laughs) um and that that was my deal I I said I cannot work alongside you because it will all end in tears I've got this job where I am and I can continue with that but I will come back and take it over I've got loads of ideas on how I can make it better but you have to step back and you can't be a part of it anymore so my mum was at a point now in her life where I think she'd had enough anyway yeah and she went it was it was tough there was a bit of a transition but when I came back I think she she had to hand over the reins, which was difficult for her. But she very quickly realised that I was bring. I brought a lot to the table, and she had clearly done a good job because she'd built a pretty mm. successful portfolio. Yeah, very much so. Right at that point, like, what did that portfolio look like at that time? 
it was about 200 properties at the time and right. it was a bit a, a range of you know one bedroom flats to you know estates with three four units on them 10 20 40 acres depending on which one you looked at it was a real variation and some obviously made more money than others the bigger ones tended to make less of course and the little ones were always the ones that made the money so it was a monster um i mean when I took it over Nothing was computerized at all. It, there were four folders with rent sheets in. And that was, that was pretty much it. I mean, the tenancies were one page. There were no terms and conditions. There was just, my mum used to go into Staples, take their book that they had on the shelf, put it on the photocopier, photocopy 50 tenancies, and then put the book back and leave. <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, it was very economical. But, <laughs> You know, it was very different trying to manage properties 20 years ago. And of course, as time's gone on, you, you can't operate like that. It, it had to be done professionally. So when we took over the business, me and my brother was only 18 at the time. And there were maybe 10% of the portfolio paying zero rent. Wow. So we were sitting on 20 plus tenants paying nothing. And it was just accepted. You know, it was just, she, she was along. The, I think she just sat enough to a point where she going, look, I've got enough money to go on holiday and do all the things I want to do. So yeah. I'm just going to let it be what it is and move on. And we had to just go through. And the first thing we had to do was get very, very good at evicting. So we've probably been party to maybe 150 evictions. Wow. We've used a solicitor maybe three, four times, I suppose. So we did it all ourselves. And initial phases, we were using Section 8. And we fell on our face a couple of times. But having done that a couple of times, you know yeah. what the mistakes are. You yeah, learn. Yeah. And you're so, putting yourself in the kind of firing line, aren't you? And, and well, it's the best place to learn, isn't it, on the job? But you're going to, it takes a few casualties for you to learn it really well, doesn't it? With sink or swim, I mean, I would, a lot of it was done through my mobile at the time. Um, we were operating out of a one bedroom flat that I was living in. <laughs> and I would put my phone down and I would, you know, as I put one call down, I'd have five more missed calls. So it was just constantly 12, 13 hour days, just batting through it to get it into a manageable position. And people would say to us, you know, can you manage our properties? I'll go, well, I'm not in the position to do that at the moment. I've got to sort my own house out first. Mm. Um, and if I didn't get a death threat a week, I, I was disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the level of evictions that we, and my mum would go along the lines of, can you get housing benefit? Yes. Okay, great. You're in. And it was, there was no referencing, there was no checking, none of that. And then there was, so there shouldn't really be any surprise when the rent didn't get paid and the boiler got stolen. Um, you know, that it became quite normal, I suppose. But what it did do was it forced, it forced me to deal with the real, real blunt end. Yeah. So there was obviously, don't get me wrong, there were never any physical altercations because, you know, it depends on how you manage people. But there was a lot of aggression from people when they're yeah, getting evicted. Cool. Of course, no one wants to leave um, their home, do they? Regardless of what the situation is, yeah. No, I mean, I'd maybe do three in a day sometimes. I'd say to the bailiff, oh, I'll see you at the next one. And we go to the next one and do another one and go to the next one and do another one. What's the idea behind this to go, right, we've got 10% of our portfolio not paying rent. Obviously, this is crazy. We're, these are investments. We need to be getting a return on these. 
and then looking at it, I guess, more of a longer term, let's put the money and the hard work in now to get them out and then get the right type of tenants in. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, at that point, did you have any kind of metrics you were working on? Did you just want to reduce that 10% down to zero? Or, or were you looking at kind of, I don't know, total returns over a period of time or anything like that at that point? I wouldn't say that there were any major metrics I was using at that stage, if I'm honest. I mean, the most simplistic way I looked at it, and it was firefighting day in, day out, because with the mismanagement came the mismanagement from a maintenance perspective as well. So it was firefighting all day, every day. But what I knew I needed to do was increase revenues and decrease costs. And that was really simple as I could make it. How am I going to increase my revenues? I'm going to get rid of all those tenants that aren't paying me any rent. But I couldn't do it all in one foul swoop because for cash flow reasons, if I were to take out 50% of the portfolio and have to renovate everything, you know, it it wouldn't have been a very pretty picture. So it was done strategically to say, right, I can do three, then three, then three, then three, then. So there was an eviction strategy, essentially. Yeah. But that was the hard bit, I would say, was in the front end. I mean, we joke about it in my office now. We've got people that still work for us sort of 10 years later. And I say, God, do you remember what it used to be like? I go, yes, yeah, it's not as interesting now, is it? I go, well, it's not as interesting, but there's something to be said for a peaceful life rather than, you know, death, death threats on a weekly basis. I mean, I kind of look at that and think, right, you had that situation where you've got to be getting people out. And like you say, the maintenance is an issue. And I totally get that it's kind of it's a chain reaction, really, isn't it? At a time when you've got people, the wrong people in the property, and then maintenance, you're not maybe doing it right, you're not able to check it when things need replacing or refurbishing. And then it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a snowball effect, isn't it? You don't change your shower tray when you should, and suddenly, two months later, the whole ceilings come down, and you've got much bigger repairs. So was that what you were thinking at that time is, look, let's put the capital expense in right now so that actually over the next x amount of years it's going to be much more profitable for us in the whole or was it that actually let's we're going to get more rent if we refurb it or is it i mean was it purely a maintenance thing or was it refurbishment as well what was kind of the thought process i mean you're right it's definitely it's definitely a vicious cycle the mismanagement led to the poor maintenance, but the bad tenants also fueled the poor maintenance because they lived the way that they lived. And of course, you know, nine times out of 10, when we evicted someone, we were getting a shell back. We would have to go in, we'd rip the bathroom out, rip the kitchen out, rip all the floor up. It would need absolutely everything from start to finish. But you're right. We were thinking we invest now, we spend the money now, and then we ensure ourselves moving forward. And we've continued with that mindset. The only thing I would say is in the very early stages, it was always I was looking at maybe a sticking plaster. So nowadays, just using fencing as an example, I do not put wooden fence posts in because I know that in four or five years time, they're going to snap. So I'll invest more in the front end. If If I have a boiler cost that's over X amount, I won't bother repairing it. I'll go... First question is, how old is it? Well, it's this old. It's, it's, I don't know, seven years, 10 years. And the, how much is the repair? Well, it's 400 pounds. Change the boiler. Yes. Um, it, it was that learning curve to say, don't just keep repairing 10 times because it will cost you more in the long run. Invest in the front end. Spend the money now and save yourself money in the long run. And we've just, it's the moment we re- I realized that. things became a lot easier because you don't have those repeat maintenance issues and of course prevention is better than cure 
Absolutely. And you, you mentioned earlier on when you were kind of getting into it that you made one comment that kind of we glossed over, which was the almost the lower value properties were the ones w- which were doing better. And obviously, when you talked about maintenance, you're getting stuff back in shell condition. When you've got low value and then you've got to do a full refurbishment, that can be really damaging when you've got a low value, although high yielding property, because suddenly you can find yourself maybe underwater from an equity point of view and things like that. So it's almost more important when you've got lower value, high yielding properties to ensure that actually you've got the right tenants in, you've got the right maintenance program in and all that sort of stuff. Because otherwise, although your your profit and loss might look good, your balance sheet might look really bad. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I suppose because we're in the southeast of England, if I were looking at sort of Midlands or up north, although it's a low value property, it's a low value property in the southeast, it's going to be very different from those areas. On so our, UK, it's still high value, yeah. Yeah, so in actual fact, that renovation relative to the overall value of the property was probably still not a massive, massive amount. Whereas in another part of the country, if you had 15,000 or 20,000 pound renovation, but the house is only worth 60 grand, I mean, mine, ours might be worth double that. Yeah. So yeah. the numbers made a bit more sense. Um, that's a really interesting point. So how would you think your model would work if you did it in the Northeast, for example, or do you think it wouldn't work because of that reason? Or I think would... if, if I'd been doing the front end stuff where I've happened to go in and renovate every time, of course, the balance sheet would have been getting absolutely smashed to smithereens. Yeah. From a yield perspective, I think we would have been okay now because we've got the right management systems and the right software and the right people involved. But if I were to go back to right at the front end, had we inherited that with all of the problems that came with it and knowing that we've got to spend virtually the same amount of money, of course, in relative terms, that might have been, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the the value of the property. So maybe it would have been a different picture. But the fact that we were in the southeast and and one thing we were very, very good at, and this is something that we did inherit inherit from our mum was very, very good at dealing with the housing benefit system. We knew it inside out on back to front. We could ring up any one of the local offices and we would always speak to someone we knew. So we had those networks in place. We had those contacts. And just understanding how to move within the system became very, very important to get that cash flow up and running. I mean, some of the tenants that were paying zero rent, for example, we didn't necessarily have to evict them because... We knew which buttons to press and who to speak to to be able to get that back where it needed to be. Yeah. I guess it's it's supporting them in the process to get what's kind of due, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. We still do that now. And I mean, you talked about, I mean, in the intro, we talked about temporary accommodation and things like that. I mean, the types of property that you've invested in, you mentioned kind of you on some estates, some new build. It seems to be a bit of an eclectic mix. How's that changed over time? in terms of the types of property and also the types of kind of tenancies? Since I took over, we've concentrated on yield ever since. Yeah. We've never back, gone back to this idea that if you go and buy a £600,000 estate with 10 acres, that that's the right way to go. We have just can continue to fixate on the, you know, maximising the yield. Yeah. Um, with the temporary accommodation stuff, dealing with those really hard tenants in the front end actually meant that a lot of what we see now is not really a surprise. Mm-hmm. So it's not for the faint hearted. And we've just continued 
you know, with a yield centric model and we've offloaded the non the underperforming assets in the last couple of years, actually more than anything in the last two or three years, we've been, and this, this is part of this is because obviously with clause 24 coming in, we went, that's going to make no sense. So we're either going to need to incorporate or we're going to need to do something with the portfolio there, but the underperforming assets need to go and then we can reinvest that money and whether it be Maidstone, Swale, Folkestone, all down that Southeast corridor, really within about an hour of where we are. And that's what we've continued to do. It's been a little bit difficult to buy at the right price, I would say, for the last maybe year. Uh, having said that, since December, we've noticed it's starting to free up and we're, we're able to get a few deals. And how's your pipeline looking? Where are you? The pipeline's you... a lot better than it was. Yeah. Um, we've normally always got three or four properties going through or three or four deals going through. I'm seeing a lot of blocks of flats at the moment. So we're involved in a few blocks down in, down in Folkestone and Maidstone. So we're focusing on that. But at the end of the day, I've always said, if something's the right price and it stacks up, I'll buy it, whatever it is. And if, you know, if I haven't necessarily got the all of the cash there and then, I'll either JV it with someone or, I mean, I do a bit of property sourcing as well. But I, I don't need to do that. I'll do that because that's the bit I enjoy. I enjoy the investment and the analysis side of it. So if I've spent all of my money, <laughs> then I would never put a property forward to someone that I wouldn't buy myself. But I enjoy that bit. So that's the bit I try and focus on. And so you've talked about kind of what you're looking at at the moment, how your pipeline is. What would change your mind? What would have to happen for you to think, do you know what? This is not the right environment for these kinds of deals these kind of tenants in this location, what would have to happen, do you think? Because at the moment, it's volatile times in the, in the kind of market and things like that. So it's interesting to see that you're still looking for these deals, obviously, price being the, has to mm. be right. But what do you think needs to change for you to suddenly think, mm, do you know what, this model isn't quite working right now under these circumstances? Probably quite a difficult question. I, I suppose because we've got the infrastructure where we are, if I were to move two, three hours away, all of a sudden my overheads would, would go up massively. And I've obviously considered investing in other areas. And in order for me to buy in those areas, I thought to myself, if I've got 20, 30, 40 properties within a locality, then I've got the economies of scale to be able to do, do it. But whether if it's between sort of one and 20, I feel as though the gain I'll maybe get on the yield, I'll lose on the front end in terms of the management costs and overheads. Yeah. So what I got from that is that actually the management side of things is just key to your to your overall investment performance, really, isn't it? It's how yeah. you operate. It's the asset management side of things, which obviously economies of scale helps. But you've got to have that skill set in the location, the right contacts, like you were talking about with the rent office and things like that, seems to be really important. Um, what then do you see as some of the biggest risks to your business and what are you putting in place at the moment to try and mitigate them well obviously the interest rate is the you know the most obvious one and everyone's ex exposed to that to a degree we've got a bit of a mixed bag most of you know most of our stuff's fixed we are on some really low reversion rates mm. and if we look at product switching for example we might have a reversion rate of 4.5 over base whereas at the moment we might be sitting on 1.95 yeah. So it's weighing up the pros and cons, whether we jump ship and then five years down the line, we've got that, you know, we've got to constantly be refinancing because obviously we don't want to be sitting on 4.5 over base, you know, the arrangement fees that go with it. Um, 
so the the interest rate is the f first one, but we're we've just got a mix of floating and fixed, but the good floating rates, if that makes yeah, sense, yeah, yeah. healthy so more, reversion more, rates. More trackers that are low, and I mean, yeah, it's like anything. You're hedging your your fix against mm. against the the trackers, aren't you? It's just, I guess, from my side, it's looking at how I like fixes at the moment. I mean, all things considered, arrangement fees, refinance, um, and that kind of thing just because of the upside risk and if it does shoot up and I've got to refinance at that time, then how is that's going to negatively impact me far more than maybe the positive impact of saving a couple of percent on the reversion rate. And it's difficult because you've got to look at your portfolio as a whole with the debt. I mean, it's easy to talk about one loan in on its own, but when you're looking at a whole portfolio mm. and you're trying to kind of judge that right, how much, I don't know, of our debt have we got coming up for renewal in or going on to reversion in the next 12 months? And mm. what does that reversion on average look like? And as a percentage of all our debt, I guess it's probably where you'd start. It's a really tricky kind of thing to look at and to and to really plan, I guess. I mean, one of the, the fortunate things is we've got um, a loan to value of about 35 to 40% across the portfolio. So as much as we don't want to have to spend more money on interest, we can absorb the cost if we need to. Yeah. So from a cash flow perspective, are we, you know, keeping those low reversion rates means we obviously benefit if the rates go down. Conversely, if rates go up, then we get punished on the other side of it. Whether we fix those in the near future remains to be seen. There's a strong possibility we will, having looked at the numbers, fix some of those, put some of those five-year fixes in yeah. that maybe six months or a year ago we wouldn't have done. So we are leaning more towards the five-year fixes, but at the same time, if the products that are on offer are, are costing out and they're going to be really, really expensive, we'll, we'll do the calculations and we'll look at it um, and we'll discount the cash flows and look at where we need to be. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I suppose... Um, we, we're just trying to mitigate the risk. Got the we've got the wiggle room to do it, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. And um, interesting about the loans of value. Would you ever look at kind of increasing that? And what environment would you need to see in order to to do that? To pull the trigger on that? Well, we like to be between fifty and sixty percent. I think that's quite a comfortable level, so that we're insured against most perils. Yeah. Should we say? Of course, in the last couple of years. We've been restricted on investment because everything's been over, you know, overpriced. It's been going for too much money. It's been too hot. So in actual fact, the uplift in the last couple of years really has taken us down from, let's say, 50 and dropped us down below 40. So it's not that we wouldn't go higher. It's just been circumstantial because we've not been able to buy properties and the developments at the right price. And the prices have kept going up. I guess it's not just looking at the loan to value, it's looking at the debt coverage ratios. And yeah, exactly. Things as well in unison, because you can get fixated on loan to values. But actually, mm. yeah, if your debt servicing costs are way too high, it's irrelevant, isn't it? Yeah, I think that we'll look to maybe increase that in the next year or two, because we still, we'll see a few more deals come to the table and we're more likely to stick, at, stick our neck out a bit as long as the numbers stack up. Yeah. So we'll probably bring that back up with a view that, well, hopefully there's going to be an upswing and we're going to get it on the other side. But the, the prices in the last couple of years, just I just felt as though everything's been overbought and it's been very, very hard to get in there and buy at the right price. So I, that's... Guess, 
I guess the only thing on that would be if rents shoot up, well, I mean, they have shot up the last kind of 12, 24 months, but if they continue to increase, not quite as quickly as they have been, but even on that kind of level, that could mitigate that factor as well. The thing is, I mean, my logic goes along the lines of if we've got a really tight labour market, then there's going to be upward pressure on wages. And if there's upward pressure on wages, then rents have got room to manoeuvre and to increase on the back of it. Combine that with all the negative propaganda and all of the upcoming legislation and a mass exodus of landlords from the sector, we've got a real, real supply shortage there. The market's getting absolutely squeezed. So supply is being driven down and demand is going up and the ability to to pay a higher rent is going up as wages go up. So and and that sort of feeds back into this idea for me that if I'm if I'm buying at the bottom, I've got a bit of a flaw in terms of where my rent my property prices can go. So you know there might be another nominal decline of between 5 and 10%, but really if rents keep going up then how far can that drop before it gets to a point where it's, well, that asset makes sense again. Obviously, prices either need to come down or rents need to go up. But a tight labour market is going to lead to higher rent, in my view, all the time that it's very supply-stricken. And I can't see that changing in anywhere in the near future. And of course... I guess my only kind of comeback to that, I'm not disagreeing with any of what you've said. I think you're, you're absolutely bang on. But is kind of if you're looking at, say, people on minimum wage and how much minimum wage and LHA rates have gone up, which is come April will be a, a decent amount, but you're still looking at, right, what can they, what else can they afford to buy? Because it's not just rent isn't the only thing they're spending money on, it's food. And what's happened to mm. food costs? They've shot up. Energy, what's happened to energy costs? They've shot up. So if you look at, say, the bottom 10% of household earners, Okay, and their energy costs might have been 7% of that household income two years ago. It's now 20%. What bucket is that taken from? Is that taken from the food bucket, the transport bucket, or the rent bucket? And that's my only concern, whereas the top 10% of household earners, their energy costs have only gone from 3% of their household earnings to 4%, for example. I, I suppose our model is a bit different because we have, as we said, one of the largest temporary accommodation providers. We, we're one of the largest temporary accommodation providers. We can flip between an AST and a temporary accommodation model quite seamlessly. Mm. So what, we seem, what we're finding is as the risk increases, as the legislation increases and the risk of taking on tenant increases, a big tranche of the people that would normally be in an AST are not that it's not a good risk management procedure to actually let to those so they won't get an ast so when it comes to the end of their section 21 or when the bailiffs come in or where the stage is they'll say i'm homeless and at that point they then get put into temporary accommodation because no one is willing to take the risk to yep. take that tenant so really temporary accommodation is housing the bottom 10 percent, let's say which is the 10 percent you're talking about but of course that's then we we get paid directly by the council for that, so we're insured against that risk. Fantastic. And what about things like maintenance and damage and things? You like mean that? temporary accommodation? Yeah. You have to have a strong stomach for it. I mean, we've had lots of incidents, and you have to be able to manage them. Whether that's 
you know, people with severe mental health issues, that's not uncommon. Whether that's someone taking a hammer to all the brand new kitchen units and smashing the place to bits. But are you um, insured against those issues? No. Do you have to pocket it? So that's got to be factored in into mm. your numbers, I'm guessing, over the, the long term. And also things like what I find is how what's the average stay of temporary mm. accommodation? Because although the word temporary implies it's short term, I imagine that actually if someone can't find anywhere to live because no one is prepared to rent to them, it's going to be kind of a lot longer than the word temporary kind of means. Well, some of our temporary accommodation clients are longer than some of our tenants. Yeah. So okay. we have sometimes people in for a day. It does happen. But more realistically, it's maybe between six months and two years. Yeah. There are a lot of risks. The margins, they, the margins actually used to be a lot, lot better. But there are a lot more providers in the market now and a lot more people trying to do it. So the margins have been eroded. But what it gives us is flexibility to move between the two models. Um, So the margin is one part of it. You can't really do it unless you're, well, you can do it, I suppose, if you're smaller, but it's more difficult because from a council's perspective, what they want to do is they want to send out two or three emails and they want to go to a few big providers and they want the supplier to arrive on their doorstep. If you're someone with one property, not only is you're not diversified enough in terms of your risk, but they don't want to send out a hundred emails to people with one property. They want to be able to send a few and then know that that demand is met. So but it does require a very strong stomach. Yeah. Cause I imagine that the more, the shorter the, the person is in occupation when they leave, there's probably always going to be an element of maintenance as there would be on any kind of AST, but more transient kind of tenancy that always leads to more. And then that can lead to voids whilst maintenance is yeah, going that, on, as well as the cost. So it's not just the maintenance cost, it's everything else that comes with it. If there's cost to find the new tenants, is that if there's any other kind of marketing costs or anything like that as well, they can all add up. Yeah, and we, I mean, we've had it before where we've had, let's say, 20 properties come back in two weeks. Yeah. And if you've got to renovate and you've got to do works on every single one of those, it's a juggling act because you might not have the physical capability to just go, oh my, but they can come in like bang, 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 three, four in a day. It's the nature of the beast. It's a bit like fits and starts. Mm-hmm. Um, it ha- you know, It's not like that at the moment, but in six months time, I could have 20 properties come back in a week. It's just the way that it goes. And I guess you've got to price that in and you look at it versus kind of, like you say, it's about having the, the flexibility from going from ASTs to to temporary accommodation just gives you another string to your bow i guess that's more like i say if i'd gone back 10 years and i was been doing it 10 years ago you would have been able to say well i do this because i made make a load more extra money yeah. now we're making a marginal increase on it but we have to put a lot a lot a lot of work into the front end yeah, so the margin marginal increase is not as much as you think but it does give us that flexibility to move between models which in any kind of business, it pays to have options in terms of who your client base is going to be. Have you ever had a situation where you've had to, you're looking at evicting someone, then they get to stay because actually they go on, on the temporary accommodation in the same place, <laughs> stay in the same, same unit? They'll never keep them in the same house. <laughs> but you, we might have a bailout. I've got an example in mind, I won't say any names. But we did, we've had that a few times. I remember we, we carried out eviction, non-payment of rent. House was in a real poor state. And then, of course, the phone rings, or the email comes through, oh, so-and-so. And then they send us, because we say, up, you know, tell us the names of the people who's moving in, because obviously we don't get to reference or check these people. 
and uh, in, oh, they've just moved out of our other property. They've gone down to the council offices. They sat there for three hours and now they've placed them back in another one of our properties. So, but because they were being, being evicted for rent arrears, well, now we know we're, our rent's getting paid. Exactly. They're never going to be the best tenant in the world because we've seen the last house, but at least we know now that it's we're covered from the rent. Yeah, it's a manageable risk. And um, we kind of went off on a few tangents there, but we started <laughs> talking about risks to the business and, and interest rates. Are yeah. there any other kind of big risk to your business at the moment as you see it and, and what are you doing to mitigate them? Well, the removal of Section 21 and the Renters Reform Bill, there are some inherent risks with that. The, the removal of Section 21 is what I see as the biggest one. Um, in order to mitigate that, we're offloading risk. And what I mean by that is if we have fear that someone's, if someone starts not paying the rent now, then going forward, there's, they're more likely to have issues. And we're quite upfront with people and we'll, you know, we'll say that you're in arrears, this is where you're at, you've not paid the rent. We're going to go go ahead, issue a section 21 and get a, a possession order on the property. And obviously we do that all in-house. So that costs us the, the cost of the court paperwork, essentially. We'll do that on a section 21. We get the possession order and that will last six years. So even if section 21 then gets removed, for the next six years, we're insured against, um, one, the removal, and two, the risk of them not paying the rent. Why would you not use section eight for that purpose? Is it because you don't want to wait until they're two months behind on rent arrears? or No, it's, it's basically a case of we would then have to go to a hearing. Right. Um, and the moment that we have to, have to go to a hearing, it, you know, all of, all of a sudden you're going for a money claim. Well, we might actually have a payment plan in place with that tenant, although we're you know, looking to get possession, we might have a payment plan in place. So that's one part of it. So we might not necessarily be going after the money as such, but of course, you know, they might get legal aid, they might put a disrepair claim in. I mean, if you have one spot, a dot of condensation on the wall, all of a sudden there's a disrepair claim, uh, you know, they're counterclaiming. You go to the first hearing, it's five minutes. They go, oh, we're going to have to, yeah. we're going to, have to adjourn and you're going to have a 50 minute hearing in three months time. It's not cost effective. We're not actually interested in trying to go for the money at that stage. We're just interested in the, uh, the ability to get the property back. Yeah. And if you've got a risky tenant, the last thing you want to see is section 21 go because once it's gone and everyone has to use these supposed strengths and grounds with a section eight, they're going to have to have a hearing and the court cannot handle the backlog as it is. They absolutely bust in at the seams. So the moment that you go down that route and you need a court hearing, I wouldn't be surprised to see that court hearing be sort of six, nine, 12 months in the future but with no way of circumventing that process. That's a big, big hit. Uh, especially for a small landlord. So we're insuring ourselves against having to go to court on, and have a hearing, really. And a section eight, is, that's where you end up. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And the Renters Reform Bill, What any other particular points in the Renters Reform Bill that you're, you're concerned about? To be honest, I think the rest of it is manageable. Um, this this idea of the the they're all going on to uh, periodics essentially, and the tenant can give two months notice at any period. It was two months, wasn't it? I think it's a bit farcical, really. I don't really see how that makes any kind of sense. But because it's all pie in the sky at the moment, anyway, until they bring out the final legislation and indicate exactly how it's going to look, I don't I don't really try and mitigate risks until I know what the risks are because. 
you can spend loads of money going in a direction only to find that actually the direction has now been changed and you've got to rethink your strategy. So until we know what's going on, I'm not going to be planning ahead. We know Section 21 is going, that, that goes without saying. Yeah. So we're planning for that. But the other stuff, we'll, uh, we'll see, how it, see how it pans out in the future, I suppose. Okay. And any other risks to the business then that you're concerned about? The EPCs. Of course, you know, minimum energy performance of buildings too. It's uh, it's been going ahead for as long as I can remember. Probably since I took over the business 10 years ago, I think it's been in the pipeline. Maybe not quite that long. But again, it's pretty farcical as it stands at the moment. They're talking about a minimum requirement of a C for all new tenancies by 2025. Well, you've got two years to find 200,000 guys to go and do all this retrofitting and you don't know what you've got a retrofit yet because they you know whether they change the algorithm or whether they implement it so again we're looking at easy ways to get c's any that we can get an immediate uplift for c we are doing but where there's loads of retrofit of let's say internal insulation these semi-detached properties and these end terraces that are solid wall construction the only way i I keep seeing to get them up to a C is to normally rip the kitchen out, rip the bathroom out, hack all the walls off for the external wall, insulate it, you know, batten it out, insulate it internally and then put it all back. So until they tell me actually where the line is drawn, I'm not going to go and spend that money. But that is the biggest risk to the property industry in the UK at the moment, as I see it massively. I can't see how it can be implemented, but you know, section 24 is still around and that makes no sense either. So. Hi everyone. I just wanted to quickly cut in with a message from our fantastic sponsor, Brickflow. For most property developers, obtaining development finance for their project is not something they look forward to. There are dozens of lenders, but most developers only know a few well enough to approach. Every lender will offer a different loan size and loan price on each project. And by only approaching a handful of lenders, we all know there's almost zero chance of getting the best loan. But getting quotes from every lender would take weeks and months. Brickflow is the UK's first comparison site for development finance, designed to save you time and money. In the same way most people search for their car insurance, Brickflow allows developers to compare more than 30 of the UK's best development lenders in seconds. Brickflow filters out the lenders that are less likely to lend to you and just leave the ones that should. They organize them in a clear way, providing estimates of what each lender will lend and at what price. Applying couldn't be simpler. There is one application process for all of our lenders. Build your project appraisal on the platform and select which lenders you would like to approach. Lenders get a clear and precise presentation about you and your project, allowing them to make quick and reliable decisions. They submit their best bid for your project and you decide which lender you want to work with. The whole process is quicker, easier, and lets you concentrate on the things you're best at. Brickflow. Development financing clicks, not weeks. Search brickflow.com today. Let's get back to the show. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, with the EPCs, I mean, there's the other thing of how it's all calculated and whether actually the calculations are correct, because it could be there was this report by Carbon Laces done a few months ago where it analysed 17,000 homes and said, actually, the EPC is not real most of these measured a d are actually a b or a c when we're actually analyzing the actual energy output from them 
And that's half the, the issue, really, isn't it? It doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, I was listening to an, an article on Radio 4 the other day, and this lady was talking about all these electronic, you know, everything was run on electric, and she had no, she wasn't burning any carbon in the property. And, and they had a guy on there that was, I can't remember, he was from the government, government essentially, and he'd done, written all these papers, and he said, no, you're right, it makes no sense because they're using data from 10 years ago in terms of where the electricity is being created. Yeah. So they haven't brought any of that up to speed. All of your electricity that you think is energy efficient, we're classing it as inefficient, but in actual fact, is much better, but we haven't changed anything. Exactly. But again, it's, it's all a bit of a joke, really. Yeah. But it does help that my son is a domestic energy assessor. Okay, so, so you've got, got an <laughs> um, idea of what's happening around the properties and where to make quick wins, then. But I think think he'll go down the retrofit assessment and coordination route because I think, that you know, in a couple of years' time, that's where it'll bottleneck. Absolutely. Exactly. Like you say, there's not enough labour to go and do all that, let alone kind of if everyone's everyone's forced to. So, yeah, really. And I mean, they're not going to get rid of, say, you can't rent because suddenly there'll be millions of stock that just disappears overnight. It's just I gave an example to someone the other day and I said, we're a big temporary accommodation provider. Not that it makes any difference whether you're in TA or whether you're on an AST. But I approach the council and I say to the council, I'm really sorry, council, but I've got 100 properties that are a D. Therefore, I'm going to give, you know, all these people that are homeless? Yeah, I'm going to, they're going to have to go. They're all going to have to be evicted. You've got to find somewhere to put them. And they go, well, the other 50 landlords, they've told us the same thing. I go, well, you know, what am I going to do? I've been told I'm going to get this big. So again, where it goes, it's, I can't see how it can be implemented as it stands, but we'll see, won't we? I can't disagree with any of that. Ross, what advice would you give to someone looking to get into property investment now? I think at the end of the day, the numbers have got to make sense. You've got to be able to you know, mitigate the risk if the rates go up. If you're fixing into a five-year, um, then at least you've got some certainty around, around what's going on. If you're if you're buying, I think it, it pays to look at the current EPC rating. It pays to look at what the costs are going to be to bring it up to a C if, if it's not already. Uh, if you're buying a property with tenants in situ, bear in mind, I mean, we're used to buying properties that have problem tenants because we know how to get rid of them. Mm. But if you're buying a property with a tenant in situ and uh, Section 21 goes, you can be you could be stuck with a bit of a problem. So just bear that in mind. Concentration on yields, as I said. I think the market is going to decline a bit in the short term. Just price that in. Don't be afraid to lowball. You know, you've got to be looking at the risks. And one of the risks are the property prices are going to go down a bit. So, you know, it's what it is. Coverage ratios, as we discussed. Yeah. Massive, massive issue at the moment. It's not necessarily loan to value. It's going to cut. You might get, I don't know, 60, 65% loan to value instead of what you would get 75 for normally just because the coverage ratios don't stack up. Yeah. And anyone that, you know, you see all these courses and, you know, be a millionaire overnight, go and spend everyone else's money, you don't need any of your own. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are some people who have managed to do it, but I would say they're the exception, they're not the rule. Don't expect to be a millionaire overnight. It's a long-term game. You're going to be maybe thinking about it 20, 30 years down the line. But I would say... What a lot a mistake a lot of people make going into the industry is they think they can do it on their own. Now, if you haven't got a serious amount of time to dedicate to monitoring those 192 pieces of legislation that apply to every tenancy, um, 
then think seriously about using an agent at least to do a tenant find because most mistakes are made in the front end. Yeah. If you don't do the referencing and you don't get the right tenant, you pay for it in the long run. And I've done it at the, in the early stages. Like I said, we had to learn and we took on some not so good tenants ourselves, but we learned very, very quickly referencing and due diligence in the front end is key. And then if you do that right, the rest of it, I wouldn't say is plain sailing, but it's, it's much, much easier and you really limited your risk there. So just try and we, I think our jobs, really, our roles in, in property investment is mitigating risk. Absolutely. That, that's what it come down, comes down to. So just mitigate that risk by looking at the professionals around you that you can do that with. Spectacular advice there. A um, couple more questions because I know we're running on, but there's so much I want to talk about. What about technology? How has technology changed? I remember you talking about when you took over the business from your mum, she was photocopying uh, the, the ASTs <laughs> and things like that. I mean, how have you utilised technology and, and how important do you think it is in your business and any any kind of tips on some of the some of the apps or some of the, the softwares that you're using and you find really useful? I mean, we started everything with Excel spreadsheets and then we bought the cheapest possible property management software that we find back in the early days it might cost me i know 300 pound or 400 pound you do pay for what you get and we then moved over to agency software a few years ago and there were sort of gaps in it we've been dealing with a guy now for, for a couple of years a guy called james um he's, he owns a company called connections and i, I, I use the I've same say, so, so good plug for james here because we, <laughs> we use connections yeah. And, like, yeah. and that i've got to say that's gone from gone up in leaps and bounds it's, especially because of what we do because it's engineered around our invoicing and accounts for the temporary accommodation and it, it's very different the way that it's invoiced so it's charged nightly there's a 12 o'clock cut off it's invoiced from the day before there are all these intricacies and we can consolidate all of that and do that all. So the accountancy side has all been embedded in it. Mm. So that saves us a lot of time on the temporary accommodation side. And then we've got the management arm on the other side and it manages that as well. So yeah, using technology um, going, going forward is going to become an even bigger role auditing. So back in the day, you, could, you might have been a bit of a rogue landlord and you might have got away with it. Nowadays, you have to make sure you dot the I's, cross the T's and evidence everything every step of the way. And having a really effective piece of software allows you to do that so that whether it's a judge or whether it's, you know, you've got a money claim or whether it's a tenant, you can say, well, here's my evidence. That's the time. That's the date. That's what got said. That's where my engineer went around. And I've got it all there in black and white. So that audit trail is massive and it will play an even bigger role as, as the, the industry continues to professionalize moving forward. Uh, and so for us, that's been amazing. Brilliant. Absolutely. And I should just say, James hasn't given us a check for, uh, he didn't know that I was going to mention it today, but as you ask, but, uh, no, he, he has been really, he's been excellent and uh, the programs worked really well for us. So, uh, thanks well, James. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link for that in, in the show notes as well, the, the software there. What do you know now about property and about investment and about business that you wished you knew when you were starting out? I think we've discussed a couple of them. In terms of maintenance, 
it's this idea that you just you're better off just investing in the front end prevention is better than cure don't put wooden fence posts in don't spend 350 500 pound repairing a boiler that's 10 years old that's on its last legs anyway just put a new boiler in and you'll, you'll get another seven or ten years out of it all those sorts of things are really really important because long term you'll gain make sure you keep an eye on your rents we we did make the mistake years ago i would say and this is more common with sort of the smaller landlords and the novice landlords and those that don't necessarily have the time to monitor it make sure you keep your rents where they need to be annually and i'm not saying that you need to have them at market rate all the time you know give your tenants a bit of a discount and for saying you know thank you you're a good tenant we're going to give you a bit of a discount but keep it below where it, you know, where the market is, but don't just leave it indefinitely because when you need to increase it, and of course this is what's happened in the last couple of years, and you're going, look, I need to pay the mortgage. I'm going to have to increase your rent by 25, 30%. Not only does it really aggravate the tenant, they might not have the ability to be able to pay that. Whereas if it had been small increments, either you would have found out earlier on that that's not really going to be viable for them to stay there, or they would have just got used to it and adjusted their lifestyle. Keep an eye on your rents. Make sure you assess them annually at the very least. We spoke about referencing and guarantors and insurance policies. So in the front end, we do outsource it, but we're looking at we're looking at income. We're looking at CTJs. We're looking at credit. We're looking at address histories, bank statements. The more information you can gather on the people that are moving into your property, the better. And there are you know professional fraudsters out there now that will try and fabricate information. I mean, when someone says to us, I own a property, or the, let's say the guarantor owns a property, most of the referencing companies don't check that. They take their word for it. And I find that really, really odd. So we then do a land registry check in the background. If someone says they own a property, we we're going to find out whether you own that property. We're not just going to take your word for it. So you've got to do all that digging in the front end. And what you find most of the time is you can get an insurance policy then to cover you for loss of rent, but only if you get them through the referencing. Mm-hmm. So the referencing is key. Expect the worst, hope for the best, and uh, make sure you've got enough money to pay your mortgages and keep your credit file clear. Because if your credit file goes pop, then in five years' time, when you go onto that 4.5 over base reversion rate, you're stuck on it and you can't get out of it. And that's where the problems really, really start to occur. So you've got to treat it with the respect it deserves or you pay the price in, in years to come. Ross, absolutely fantastic. So many just brilliant bits of advice in that. Last question then, which I tried to ask everyone when I can remember, what's the kindest thing someone's ever done for you in business? The kindest thing? Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> no, this one always throws people, but what, what do you reckon the kindest thing is people someone's ever done for you in business whether it's business whether it's kind of education whether it's i don't know dealing with temporary accommodation whether it's back at Citibank, whether it's on your doing one of your degrees what do you think it is the kindest thing someone's ever done for me in business that is it's a very difficult question i wish i'd had this one in advance i could have i could have really had a chance <laughs> to think about this I've met so many amazing people over the years. It's, it's, it's a difficult one. I don't even know if I've got an answer for it, if I'm honest. I've, I've met so many people that I've gotten with so well, and loads of people helped me out along the way. Mm. Um, I can't say there's a defining moment, sure. but I think you've always, 
you got always got to be open-minded and ask if you don't know ask and nine times out of ten people do actually want to help you they don't want to see you struggle and suffer in pain so ask if there's something you don't know the only question was it the only there's the only silly question is the one you don't ask or is a saying yeah. <laughs> so but i can't think of an individual moment but people help me all the time i don't profess to know everything i'll never will but if, if i need some help i'll pick up a phone or even just bounce an idea off a friend and say can you have a look at this and tell me if you think this is worth it am i dreaming here should this be 100 grand less or 100 grand more so that's more of a, a piece of advice i suppose but i've got some great people around me um so don't be afraid to ask the question because nine times out of ten they do want to help but they don't want to see you fail miserably absolutely i couldn't agree more ross thanks so much for coming on the show today been <laughs> i've really enjoyed it and you've given so many bits of fantastic advice so really appreciate it thanks very much for having me Rod.